leaders. We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Change. Liberation is a praxis of action, team flexion upon the world. Welcome to the pedagogy of the obsessed. Welcome to the pedagogy of the obsessed. This week, Shanna Peoples and I get real with Leanne Stevens. Dr. Stevens is the 2006 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, an equity and instructional coach, and Twitter Maven at MNTOY2006. This conversation was recorded earlier in the year when the Starbucks profiling incident was national news. Since then, not much has changed, and there are even more school-based incidents that make her thoughts and perspectives relevant and urgent. So let's dive in. Give us an overview of the work you've been doing and what's brought you to your current work. I coach teachers around their beliefs about black and brown students and how they're showing up for them in the classroom. And But also I coach them on their instruction. I've had a shift in my thinking recently about beliefs and like, is it really about my changing beliefs of people? And I've come to the conclusion that it's not. For some people it may happen, but for some it may not. And for me, it's getting them to see how their beliefs impact their classroom, how their beliefs impact the students who are showing up in their classroom every single day. Always asking them, when your students of color come in here and in this space, do they see themselves in this classroom? Do they feel like this is a place that where they belong? You know, and I had a teacher I just asked him that last week and he told me no. And then I gave him some coaching tips on how to make that happen. And then I go in, I'll do some co-teaching uh, as well, I help teachers with curriculum. So how do we make it more culturally relevant? In asking people to talk about their experiences and then to tell their stories, what have you found that's been really effective in, in helping people talk about or make their experience where other people can learn from it? I will share part of my racial autobiography. Mm. And then I'll ask, what is either your most recent experience with race or your earliest experience with mm. race? It doesn't have to be negative. I think sometimes when mm-hmm. we talk about that, people think of it as negative. Or you can ask, when were you first aware of race? Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening, particularly with white people, they mm-hmm. connect it with when they met somebody of color. Mm-hmm. Because they don't look at themselves as having a race. Mm-hmm. And why people have race? Because it's a social construct mm-hmm. and it's purely skin color, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's that meaning that's attached to it that becomes that reality. How people have been racialized is how they continue to show up every day. Mm-hmm. And also that's why we do what we do in the classroom because of how we've been socialized racially. We end up with, you know, our different belief systems that we have. I think I look at that Starbucks issue. I'm like, yeah, because of how that person has been socially racialized to view black people. I'm wondering what your experience is with that. So when you start that conversation, do you find that responses fall into patterns? I mean, have you noticed patterns of responses, particularly from white audiences? I think what I end up noticing is, well, the first time I met a person of color was when I went to college. Mm -hmm. So race is for everybody who is 
not white. And so that's then where you have to have that come. And that it's it's hard. People don't think like that. Right. Why do people think like that? They think of race. They think of everybody else. Right. Having to have that kind of a conversation for some people is it's a struggle. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of Starbucks incident that you're talking to. As a white person, you should know that this happens. You know, or you're shielded from this. And the person was so upset because they said. Why do you have to be racist by starting it out by saying white people? I found that really interesting because I, that's just the truth. You, this is a white person. But they took such offense at being called a white person. It's easy to be in this bubble here at Harvard where people go to great lengths to make sure that people are, are made aware of this and, and we try very hard to to be aware of these things. And then I remember that there's a huge swath of the country, particularly the Midwest, that may not have that idea at all and could view something like white people being called a white person when you are, in fact, a white person as racist. And then that leads me to how comfortable are you having a conversation about race? A lot of people aren't very comfortable. Mm -hmm. Why are you not comfortable? Or why are you comfortable? Mm -hmm. Because I know for me, like even as a black woman, but like growing up when I had my white friends say that, you know, oh, I just see you, Leanne. I don't see, yeah. how, you know, and I used to think, oh, wow, that's so wonderful. Um, <laughs> they just see me, you know, but realizing like, but every time I look in the mirror, <laughs> you know, or any reflection that I have of myself, I see my black skin. Mm -hmm. And I also see how I'm treated because of that. It was a while before I realized, wait a minute, what are you saying? Like, it wasn't a compliment yeah. to say that that you don't see my skin color, that you mm -hmm. just see me, because it's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I have some different lived experiences because of it. I need that to be acknowledged. Because then what ends up happening, we start with this equ equality kind of stuff, right? So if I don't see your color or whatever, then I'm like, oh, we're equal. No, we're not. And I don't even really, I'm not really interested in equality, but I'm really interested in equity. Because I, I may need, we all need something different. When we say equality, I'm just like, mm, there's not a whole lot of skin in the game with that. But when we say equity, man, I got to do something different for different people. And that's going to take some work. Are you finding that people still want to pull the, the conversation back to equality? Very rarely do people in my circle use equality because they know that that's, that's not what it's about, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you just give, you know, the shoe example, remind them that equality is everybody, you know, everybody needs shoes, so I'm going to give everybody a size nine because that's what I wear. Mm -hmm. That's equality. But equity is giving people the size shoe that they, mm -hmm. that fits. And, you know, this like, Literally, this is it, this is the work that I do. I've been doing it for three years, and it doesn't get any easier. What advice do you have for people who want to do this but are scared and don't have an entry point? What would it look like if you did the work? Even if they're afraid, so getting on the other side of that fear. If you could do the work, what would that look like? So to me, that's like the starting point because then they will say, well, I would change my curriculum or I would have conversations with staff members after they give you that list 
Well, let's look at it. What's one of those things that you can actually start with? We need to start somewhere and we need to be extremely reflective. Uh, For me, it's not focusing on what can't be done, but then I have to look at what is it that I can do myself. And so when I look at the protocol, so the courageous conversation about race protocol, and that's like the conditions for sure. And that's why it's like, keep it personal, local and media. What in your, your sphere, your realm of influence can you focus on? So I'm not speaking for everybody else. I'm going to speak for myself. And I think even starting with that, starting with two parts of it, the four agreements and the compass. So that to me is an entry point. So I think starting with the compass, because that's just the floor. Everybody's coming in on one part of that, even if they don't admit it. Mm -hmm. And then the agreements. So the agreements are going to be the walls. I consider those the walls that hold us in the conversation. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about race because it makes us really uncomfortable. And what we end up saying is, oh, I don't feel safe in this environment. No, you don't feel comfortable. We love to say we don't feel safe because we think then that shuts down the conversation. I think starting with those two, those are easy pieces Mm. because they apply really, I feel like, to any conversation. For those who might not be as familiar with the agreements or the compass, could you give kind of the the version of it that you would kind of explain it to somebody who's new to the work? So someone who's new to work, I would say we have a lot of things. We have a lot of things on our minds. This may not be like the most important moment for you. So what's coming up for you? How are you feeling? You start with like how people are feeling. And then when you introduce the compass, you're like, here's a tool that we use with creative conversations about race, understanding like where we're coming in, because it's really important for me to know where I'm showing up, but also whoever's in the space for me to know where they're showing up as well so that I can have a more productive conversation. And so that's what the compass does. It lets each other know like, where we're entering into the space. And so if I know that like you're really, really emotional, that's good for me to know that because then I'm going to enter that conversation in a different in a different way. But if I don't know where you're showing up, um, I might say something that really offends you or, you know, not knowing kind of what what's going on. We want to be we want to get centered, but it's okay not to be centered. Some people aren't centered. And I think I would work the compass where I would just say, I'll say, I'm feeling really exhausted right now. And because I'm constantly, uh, I feel like I'm constantly fighting systemic racism, right? But my belief is that I need to be anti-racist. My belief is that it's a battle that I need to continue to fight. I need to continue to fight to dismantle systems that are set up to oppress a group of people. So then my beliefs, so then I'll say, but what I'm thinking is, man, I got some questions. I'm, you know, I have these thoughts of, can I really do this work? Am I really being effective? My action would be, but you know what? I need to just go ahead and do the work. Mm-hmm. And understanding that it's not enough for me to say that racism is bad, but I need to be actively out there to dismantle it. And so I would just like work my way around the compass to show an, an example. And then constantly checking in with so even as I'm doing a presentation or we're having a conversation always going back to so where are you right now because people will be in different depending on what the conversation is some may have been like in the like in the field or somebody been in like thinking but something that was said moves them to like an emotional spot or they're like really examining their beliefs and so just practice like navigating that compass with people so what you do is you could have them like sit knee to knee and 
tell something about how they got their name. Do you have a, a story that you share about your experience with, with race when you were in school that's affected your education? I have a lot of instances of being followed in Target. And when I'm in Target, only thing that they see is my skin color. They don't care that I have four college degree. They don't know that. Whatever meaning that they have attached to the color of my skin is what gets them to react. And I, one particular time that I was in Target and I knew exactly what I wanted. And so I went straight to that section. And apparently I was, I, I don't know if I was spending too much time or because I didn't have a cart or whatever security. And it was actually the underwear section. And the security mm -hmm. guard comes and stands right there. And he's standing. And finally I said to him, you know, I realize I'm taking a long time but I'm not going to steal anything. So I just need you to understand that I'm not going to steal. He looked at me. He was like, oh, okay. And he still stood there the whole time watching me. When I told the story to a colleague, a white male colleague, he said to me, well, I want to go to Target with you. And I couldn't figure out why he was asking me that. And I'm like, what? And he said, no. Yeah, he goes, because I can't believe that happens. He said, I'm going to stand off and I want to watch. What does that do to me when someone said that? Because that's actually my experience. I would ask them to locate themselves on the compass. So after that story, what's coming up for you? Do you have some feelings that are coming up for you? Do you have some beliefs about what I said? Do you have some questions? Or do you have, like, you want to put your feet to the, to the floor and, and do something? What's coming up for you? And so that's how I would. The, the very fact that you knew he was standing there because he thought that you could think, oh, he's thinking I'm going to steal something here, to me makes me think that this has happened numerous oh. times to you. Yeah, it has. Wow, how many times? Mm -hmm. I don't even know. I mean, it's ha it happens. It happened to me. I was in Lush, so I don't go back there anymore. Mm -hmm. There's so many examples. I literally have gone into DSW which I buy so many shoes from them. But I remember I went in one time and literally made an announcement at the front of the store. And I said, I need, I like loudly too. I said, I need you all to, under, to know, because I've got followed a lot in there. I need you to know that I am not going to steal anything. So I just want to get that out there right now. And it got really quiet. Nobody knew what to say. But a student who was at, from my high school, she came up to me later. I think she came up to me at school or something. She said, she was, that's why I quit, because mm -hmm. I was told to, like, watch the black people who came in there. I try to be mindful and make sure I have a cart, because if I don't have one, I do get followed. I can't imagine a lifetime of, of that. And that's what I think people, going back to the Starbucks incident, I think the thing, the reason that some people have reacted in shock about that is because it's made instances like what you're describing and like what those young men went through, it's made it explicit on video where, where people could have told that story and, and people have been like, yeah, you know, that probably doesn't really happen. Yeah, it does. Absolutely happens. <laughs> you know, so when I saw that, I wasn't surprised. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Not surprised at all. Yeah. And, you know, the comments are like, well, there had to be, you know, extenuating circumstances. They had to have done something. It has to be more to the story. We haven't seen X, Y, and nope, you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> just be. Just show up who you are and just be. Yeah. 
So, so obviously four hours is a drop in the bucket for the uh, Starbucks employees and their time. But I'm kind of curious from your expertise, like if you had that four hours to work with the, the staff of Starbucks, how would you design that time? That's been on my mind a lot. I'm wondering like, what is that going to look like? And who's going to be leading it? What would I do with that time? I would use the courageous conversation about, about I think I would use that protocol. I would do the compass, I would do the agreements. Either I would do that or I would, we would talk about, because I know you want to talk about like implicit bias and some of those pieces. I mean, there's like a lot of activities we talk, maybe talk about assumptions that they have about people of color. I don't know. That's a good question. Because four hours is not a lot, a lot of time. And yeah. so the training, when I do it, it's like two days. Yeah. So and even that's just a start. Like what? Like, yeah. how could you cut out? Yeah. Everything builds upon everything. I would ask, I know what I would ask, though. What percentage do you think race impacts your life? And then, because what ends up happening, a lot of times people, oh, 0%, 10%, 50%, whatever. What ends up happening is, like, we'll do an exercise for them after that. And I, yeah, I would take them through the Peggy McIntosh mm-hmm. Unpacking White Privilege. So I would do that exercise with them. You get the numbers. The, normally people of color have the, the lower numbers. White people have the higher numbers. We'd look at that. I'd have the whole store or whatever line up on that. And I don't know, like, what if you have all white people? Mm-hmm. Then they'd all have high numbers. And then you'd have to, like, have some conversation about how this would, this isn't the case for people of color. But then when you get back to how much you think race impacts your life, hundred percent, whether you're aware of it or not. So your awareness is whatever number they put, that's their consciousness. Yeah. Um, They can do some exercises. Like I'll give you a minute and list all the black people who, you know, in in history who were famous, but they can't be athletes or entertainers. And particularly because these were black men. And then I would say, now I'll give you a minute and list all the white people, you know, in history who were famous, but who weren't athletes or entertainers. And normally, like every single time I've done that, the list of white people has been like twice as much. And why is that? I'd probably do something with like, like all, I'd actually have them do an exercise that when I love with about Rosa Parks, like all they, what they know about her and then do the below the line, what they don't. And why don't we know that and talk about stock stories? A stock story would be that what I learned about Rosa Parks growing up, that she was tired and old and she didn't want to give mm-hmm. up her seat. Mm-hmm. The concealed story was she was a trained activist. Mm-hmm. Mil- you know, she, she, um, uh, investigate, she was a lead investigator for the NAACP. She investigated rapes of black women by white men. And why didn't I do that? So yeah. what, and why didn't I know that? Yeah. Um, definitely would have to bring in someone who is skilled in leading this kind of a conversation to be able to compact in like four, four hours. Cause it'll be really emotionally charged. You know, I've had a teacher tell me that this racial equity work is a bunch of BS. Mm-hmm. And so instead of getting angry about it, I'm like, so tell me more about what you meant by that. It's really changed the way that I have conversations. It's really easy for us to let people off the hook. 
I, I'm just really grateful to you for, for giving us your time. And I, I think that you're an amazing person. And I'm glad that you're here and doing this work. Oh, well, you're really kind. Thank you. It's Yeah, I don't have all the answers, but, you know, just takes us all, really, right? right? To just do what we need to do and stand in our purpose and not worry about who we can't change, right? But what change can we affect? We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Knowledge emerges only through invention and reinvention. Through the restless and patient continuing, hopeful inquiry human beings pursue in the world, with the world, and with each other. The solution is not to integrate them into the structure of oppression, but to transform that structure so that they become beings for themselves. Liberation is a practice of action and reflection on the world.